Why is there so much unease about work and the workplace? Why do people dislike their jobs? The right kind of economics, the economics of subjective value, can help us. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. There's a concept in economics that goes by the name of disutility of labor. What that means in plain language is that people don't want to work. They prefer leisure. And so there's always a trade-off between working for a living and taking leisure. But like a lot of things in economics, that's all wrong. We all have the choice to use our agency, our initiative, our energy, our effort to produce value in the way that we want. And doing that as a member of a larger organization, a firm, is a perfectly valid choice and can be meaningful and inspiring, as well as providing us with the leverage of assembled and accumulated capital that makes our work more productive. Nevertheless, work in the office or the construction site or many other work locations can be the opposite dispiriting and demotivating. In fact, as our guest today, Melissa Swift, has written, there are many situations where work sucks. Why is that? Well, it begins from using the wrong economics. If those designing jobs and workplace environments were using Austrian economics, they'd think about the subjective value of the job to the individual who's working on it. They'd apply empathy to design jobs and workplaces that people enjoy. They think about how people feel about doing their job, not simply about how compliant they are. There's an interesting book by David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs, in which he estimates that 40% or more of the jobs in which people are employed today are bullshit, meaning that they produce no value, and the people who work on them know that they produce no value, as do the employers for whom they work. Elon Musk recently set this number, as he perceived it at Twitter, not at 40%, but 75%. The monster perpetrating this negativity is often the HR department, a nasty bureaucracy that's become bigger and bigger over time and is the main reason why work sucks. Part of the cause is there's not much humanism in HR these days. Melissa Swift believes that all this is reversible and curable. She's the author of Work Here Now, How to Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. She's a leader in what consultants call workforce transformation. How are people going to work best together in the new digital world? More importantly, she's a humanist, and she's trying to improve the feeling we all have about the work that we do and the environment in which we do it. Melissa, welcome to the Economics for Business podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about your book, and it starts out with the arresting phrase, work sucks. So... Tell us why work sucks or how work sucks, I guess, is the beginning place to start. Yeah, I mean, work sucks in many ways, right? I mean, in the book, I I talk about it being dull. I talk about it being dangerous. There's all sorts of ways in which work can suck. And I think what's interesting is that when you look at the academic research, it's kind of started to suck worse for quite some time, right? For decades, there's been all of these trends making it worse. But we didn't really feel it until the pandemic when we took a step back and, and we looked at work. And we're like, oh, goodness, something's off here. Well, we jumped in uh, at the deep end there, but your, your book is called Work Here Now, and it 
is subtitled Think Like a Human to Build a Powerhouse Workplace. And it's full of, of, I think, breakthrough and and significant and novel ideas. At the beginning, you, you introduce a kind of binding concept, which is what we call subjective value, how people feel about how they are doing their work. You call for a marrying of economics and empathy. We think we already did it in Austrian economics, Melissa. Economics is empathy. It's subjective right. value, how people feel. That, that is value. But you say that uh, that matters in how people do their jobs. So let, one question I have is, why is management science always got that wrong about, you know, we structure jobs, we have job descriptions, but we don't think about how people feel about their jobs. Why is that? You know, it's, it's very strange. We have set up these kind of super artificial walls, right, between how kind of human beings operate and how work operates. And it's not doing us any favors at this point in history. And as I talk about in the book, the roots of that division are pretty dark. So, you know, for instance, a lot of how we do performance management comes not from the Industrial Revolution, but actually from slavery, that we were thinking about measuring the performance on a human as an individual owned asset. That's warped. That's not right. But those are some of the, the deep roots. And that's a bit of why we've, we've set up this wall that really, it's not benefiting anybody. It's not benefiting corporations that kind of have this productivity curve they can never quite get up. And it's certainly not benefiting workers who don't actually enjoy their jobs. But we're very invested in this artificial division of kind of humanity and work. And this book is about just breaking through that wall. Yes, interesting point. Maybe we can blame economics. It thinks of labor as an input, and you've got to figure out the return on labor. Maybe it is economics' fault. <laughs> so, some of the, you mentioned some of these words, but maybe you can highlight a couple of them. Boring, I understand that. Frustrating, confusing, but also dangerous. Why is yeah, it dangerous? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you, you know, there are a lot of jobs that are actually dangerous, right? So, you know, forestry or, you know, deep sea fishing. But then what's interesting over the last few years, a lot of data has come out that even what we think of as kind of banal office jobs, actually, you know, there's been research from the, the UN, from the World Health Organization, that these really shave years off of our lives. And a lot of what we think of as kind of endemic illnesses might not exist if we just worked differently. I mean, there's research now tying excess mortality to excess hours worked. It's that linear. And I think it's time for us to kind of have a bit of a wake-up call and, and pay attention. Because even if you're going to think about it in sort of the purest economic terms, there's a huge cost to the health system and then back to companies that pay for health insurance of those bad working practices. So even if, you know putting the human element aside for a second, there's, there's actually a cost associated with our bad ways of working. Yeah, someone was pointing out to me the other day that the reason why health uh, insurance was tied to work was because of dangerous professions. It started in industries like logging and so on like that. But you're pointing out that's why it persists today in, uh, in office work. So um, you highlight a couple of reasons why uh, work feels as bad as it does today. One of them you talk about is work intensification. Yeah. And in a in a nonsensical way. You said it doesn't make any sense. Tell us about work intensification, Melissa. Yeah, so work intensification is kind of the best kept secret of academic researchers who study work. Because if you think about it, over the last, you know, 
20, 30 years, whatever, we've all been kind of feeling like work's getting worse and we're working harder. And it's across every job, by the way. It's, you know, I have too many Zoom meetings in a day. Uh, if my job is picking strawberries, it's I have to pick more strawberries in an hour. Every job has a version of this kind of more, more, moreness. And that's work intensification. And it doesn't feel very good. It drives higher rates of attrition. It, it's, it drives you know, bad health outcomes. There's all kinds of sort of bad things about it. And the interesting thing is, again, it doesn't actually necessarily drive greater productivity. And a lot of times what's intensifying the work, and this is really interesting when we study it for clients, is it's not the core work. It's not the what I would think of as the meat of my job. It's the everything else. It's the million other initiatives that are going on. It's the, did you monitor how many boxes you packed even as you packed the boxes? It's the everything else that really, you know, makes work sort of denser and denser um, in ways that have been, you know, again, tied to all kinds of bad outcomes. You had a beautiful term in there for uh, intensification, which was, was over-collaboration. We collaborate too much. What, what did you have in mind there? Oh, my goodness. So this is a great example of good intentions gone horribly wrong. So, you know, some years ago, we set out to make organizations less command and control. And we said, you know, let's, let's, let's not just give orders. Let's all work together. And then technology helped us work together better. The issue is now, and this has been brilliantly studied by people like Rob Cross, is that we now require too many people working together on any one task at any one time, because some of it is kind of fear-driven consensus culture rather than true collaboration. And what I think is interesting in the, the work of researchers like Cross is that they show that the people who are over-collaborated the most are the people who least feel like they can say no. So, you know, it's, it's women, it's ethnic and racially diverse individuals, right? It's the people who are in positions of diminished power who have to just go collaborate with everybody and are basically, their work becomes unbearably intensified. And at the same time, they are so over-collaborated that they don't show the individual success the workplace is looking for, and they actually fall behind. So it's a really kind of warped dynamic. And I think, you know, as we'll get into a little bit further down, you know, some of these trends that are changing work for the better and for the worse, I do think there are some of these trends that may affect how we collaborate in really positive ways. That makes me think about all of the the uh, work around team and team building and team as the focus. Do we do we get that wrong? Is that is that a problem of over collaboration or how do you fit in the thinking about teams? No, I'm I'm actually very pro focusing on teams because I think teams are where work gets done, and that's why half the strategies in the book are at team level because mm -hmm. I think that's often a place anybody who picks up this book can impact their own team, whether they lead that team or they're just a part of it. That said, what's going on is that we belong to too many teams within many, many organizations. You know, if I had to name every team I was a part of right now, I don't think I could even do it. It would be quite a list. And, and that's the issue of what's the real working team? When does it come together? When does it disband? How does it work together? I love some of the work that organizations are doing right now on team contracts actually explicitly saying, this is who's on the team and this is how we're going to work together. I think that's really positive. So I like the focus on teams, but you can only be on so many teams. Yeah. Another element that you point out, I'm staying on the problem side for a 
a little bit longer is is what you call performative work. Some of this is theater. Some of it is we're we're putting on a performance. What what's your analysis there? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's another one of those things that have been going on for a while and then really popped during the pandemic era. That because there's a fundamental issue, and this is one of the red threads in the book, is that we don't always know, we don't always properly tie work to outcomes. And performative work is the ultimate sort of realization of that phenomenon. When, you know, we're just like, okay, look, I'm so busy. I sent these emails. I set these meetings up. I'm loud in the meeting without contributing any real value. And performative work is a problem for a few different reasons. So number one, it creates no business outcomes. You're using resources and you're not generating outcomes. That stinks. Number two, it's also a DEI problem because, again, the people who are performing work well are often overrepresented groups and they continue to get ahead because we're not measuring the outcomes. We're not looking at whose work has the real impact. And so that's why you have to sort of take a step back and tie work back to impact. And then it's a great de-intensification tactic. Pull all the performative stuff out and people's workdays are a lot nicer and you get more done. So one of the very different elements of your book is you list tens, dozens of strategies for overcoming this. Um, you know, it's not, there are five secrets to success. It's, it's much more comprehensive and analytical than that, which is very, very different. Um, before we get into the strategies, you say that the starting point is to actively look for and root out these kinds of problems. Talk to your teams and your employees about how they're feeling about work. Be humble and curious when doing it. So, uh, tell us about that. That sounds, that's an attitude, it sounds like, as opposed to a tactic. Absolutely. And it, it, it requires, that word humble is in there very deliberately because it requires a leader to step back and say, okay, I might not, and I, I talk about misunderstood work in the book, I might not understand every piece of what my folks are doing. And I might not, you know, I might not see it. I might not know it. I might not get it. I might not have the same skills they have. And those are all humble postures. But once you come from that place of humility of, you know what? I don't know your work. Tell me about your work. That's just a seismic shift in, in how you manage the work. And then also paying attention to how people feel about it. You know, if people are saying, God, that Thursday meeting, it's killing me. What are the chances that Thursday meeting is actually productive? It's probably not. I mean, this is the move that Google did recently where they said, we want to be more efficient. Employees, crowdsource, tell us where we're inefficient. This mm -hmm. idea that your employees know the work better than you do, that's powerful. So that's pretty much turning managerial science on its head, isn't it, Melissa? Because managerial science says that in a hierarchy, the person who's higher up the ladder knows better than the individual what to do and how to do it. So are you, are you overturning the whole of management science here? Well, it's not, it's not a complete overturn, right? So <laughs> what I might have as the manager is the sort of the insights about how to grapple certain problem types, right? So, okay, I've, I've seen that kind of thing before, right? Here's, here's how we might tackle it. But it's, it's taking away that it's, you know, I've got strategies rather than I've got all the information. I think that's the shift. Yeah. No, it's a real challenge. I, you do identify another element that, that the, the manager might know, which, which you call a monsters. Hey, there are, there are monsters we could look, look out for. Um, we, we talked about the anxiety monster. Tell us about that. Yes. 
Yeah, so this one, it, it lives inside us all, right? It's that little voice in your head kind of going, oh, people are lazy and they're slow and they're just, they're not, oh, they're just, we can just push them a little bit more, right? And the thing is, we do it to ourselves, right? How many times do we sit there? I could be doing more. You know, what are all those articles, all those books about productivity? I taught at a former employer. I taught a class on productivity for my coworkers, right? Like more and more and more, you know, like, oh, but the, when you take away that anxious voice, then you start actually having really good conversations about how work gets done. So if something's not getting done and you don't have that reflexive answer of people being lazy and slow, you start to root out the real problems. Okay, it's not getting done because we set up the wrong process. We utilize the wrong system. You know, we assign the wrong team. Those are all much more fixable than trying to stand over people, just telling them to work faster and harder. And, and that's what's exciting to me is that when we, we shut down the anxious stories in our head, that's like we're, we're just better managers. Yeah, I love that, that shutting down the anxious stories in our head. It's, uh, it's hard to do, I think, but being conscious of it is the right step. So let me just mention the other monster, which was, which was fascinating. We, you called it the baby boss customer. We've, we've got to the point of customer service where it's so onerous that it becomes stressful and, and anxiety. Absolutely. And you know what? This one comes out of great intentions, right? Let's over deliver. Let's do, you know, white glove service, two day shipping. You know, we again, every company has its equivalent of this. But what we've done is we visualize the reason why they're they're a boss baby is both your customer is completely in charge of you, but they're also they're a baby. They're helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. And what a strange dynamic to set up with your customer. And what a recipe for driving your employees completely crazy, right? So instead of saying, okay, well, what are my customers' needs that I can really fulfill? And, you know, here are the ways I can over-deliver. Okay. Here are the ways I can just deliver. And here's where my customer can meet me. I think that's the, the piece that's, that's sort of gotten lost is that some of the pieces of over-delivery actually go wrong and then lead to under-delivery. So mm -hmm. if we had a more sensible concept of kind of, meeting the customer where they're at, you would actually have a better, more consistent customer experience. Instead, we are so frantic trying to over-deliver. You know, if you think about, have you ever hosted someone at your house that you really wanted to impress, right? What are the chances that you then dropped the whole tea tray or, you know, mm -hmm. the dog ran in with muddy paws or something silly like that? It's when you're in, again, you're in that anxious mode. You actually don't do things as well. And so that's where saying, okay, I'm going to map out my customer experience. And I'm going to map out my employee experience. And I'm going to figure out a way that the gears turn together rather than grinding. That's the really constructive move. So one part of that, Melissa, is really close to our project. It's the idea of being entrepreneurial about that, about listening to feedback, about adapting, about, about changing. So we, we certainly encourage that. It's really hard for companies to do that. And you pinpointed a, a, a cause, you call it the workplace copy machine, where we're incented to keep doing the same things over and over and again, not be adaptive. Yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because sometimes it's because it, it's just easier at scale not to change. So, you know, I talk about, you know, you go to hire somebody, okay, which rec are you going to clone? Okay. Literally copy pasting, what's the human being you're going to copy paste into this role? Unhelpful. 
you know, and then we, we reward leaders as well for all that kind of sameness. And I think the transition has to be made from rewarding sameness to rewarding kind of within a healthy valence consistency. I would make a real distinction between the two. A quick note. Economics for Business is a uniquely Austrian platform to help entrepreneurs build value-generating businesses at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. We've now launched online with an outstanding database of entrepreneurial knowledge, tools to solve specific business problems, and a community exchange to share information and experiences. Check it out at econforbusiness.com. That's E C. O-N, the number four, business.com. Explore and let us know what works best for you in the feedback section. Now, back to our conversation. Yeah, that, I, I love that point. I find it really challenging to think through, though. So the, the first half of it is, that's a great insight. We incent to each other for smoothness, for no shocks, no surprises. And then on this other side, we say entrepreneurship is about adaptiveness and change, and it's going to be lumpy, and, and the opposite is smooth. How do you create a culture that, that rewards not smooth? Right. How do we do well, that? Some, yeah, some of it is uh, being able to have a, a culture that's not – I think some organizations have the cultural equivalent of, of an autoimmune disease, right, where – every tiny perceived change or intrusion gets this inflamed response. And so some of it really has to do with training leaders. And this is something that a lot of my work on great leadership in the, the digital age kind of centered on this training leaders to do less, which is really uncomfortable and weird. Your whole career, you know, it's like you dived in, you solved the problem. And now we're saying, okay, it's about what you don't do. And so it's pulling back that inflammatory response. And then that's when you have the mo you can be adaptive, you can pivot, you can be entrepreneurial because people aren't literally freaking out. But it, it takes a lot of good collective leadership behavior to say, okay, I'm gonna watch this experiment and see how it goes. I'm gonna watch this person manage this, you know, crisis from the outside market, and I'm gonna see how it goes rather than I'm gonna jump in and be a hero or heroine and solve it. Yeah, I often feel like, the, the concept of leadership as being a problem it's it created in business school maybe and it overburdens the leader as you point out you got to be bigger you got to be you got to do more you got to have better ideas leadership is a very fraught concept i think it's done a lot of damage no it is and the interesting thing that we're seeing at, at this point in history is a lot of burned out leaders Mm -hmm. And so we get really interesting questions about how do we get burned out leaders to better lead burned out populations? And that's a that's a fascinating conversation. And, and how do we build this is something we've been working with clients on. How do we build sort of rest and recovery into the work day? So not I'm going to work like a demon for months or years and then I'm going to go take you know a nice vacation in Italy. Right. Because that sort of sprinting and pausing isn't isn't working. It's about how can I have a sensible day where maybe I have 30 minutes to take a walk at my lunch break. Right. That's that's a bit of the future for these burned out leaders. So that takes me in my mind to the HR department that should be thinking about this and they've become a bit of a monster uh, themselves, I believe. So uh, 
you're far more qualified to talk about that than I am. You've been a student of HR. You've been a HR consultant in the leading HR consultancy in, in the world. Um, so you can assess the HR department in the modern corporation better than I can. You say it's stuck in the 19th century. But give us your yeah, assessment about HR as a function today. It's fascinating because of all the functions, HR is the one that people really get into for the best reasons. People get into HR because they want to help the people in organizations. So the intent is unbelievably good. But what happens is that the deep history of HR, I think I call this in the book, you know, the history of HR is dark and boring. <sighs> HR was founded as a function to basically quell violent, and I mean, literally violent, you know, buildings blowing up and stuff, clash between labor and management. HR was supposed to stand in the middle and keep things from, you know, people from being shot, buildings blowing up, things burning down, et cetera, et cetera. That's the history of, of HR. And so the historical structure of HR, you know, with kind of a classic sort of employee relations and people to pay people and blah, 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 was set up to just, you know, kind of keep the lid on that boiling pot. And that remarkably hasn't changed a lot since then. In the book, I follow, you know, through some classic HR texts from the 60s until now. I mean, it's, we are structurally so much the same and progress does get made. We recently did a big survey on operating models of HR organizations. They are getting more centralized. They are experimenting more structurally, but still we have a long way to, to go to kind of take it from the promise of why people get into HR, which is amazing, to kind of the reality of, of how those groups are set up and empowered today, which is not that different from the first HR department at the National Cash Register Company, you know, back at the turn of the last century, which is which is pretty shocking. So what we need, you say, is is putting humanism into HR, which is where it should be, but it isn't. It, humans in the name, right? Human resources, but the humanism isn't there. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a trope about, you know, HR works for management. And I, I think it's worth turning that a bit on its head and saying HR works for the collective success of the organization. And the collective success of the organization is both, again, the growth and profitability of the organization, but it's also the overall welfare of its employees. And, you know, there were threads of that in HR's history. One of their early jobs was to protect specifically women and girls in the workplace. Right. But again, it wasn't to it was a very paternalistic way of looking at protecting people. And, you know, there's a huge difference between sort of paternalism. I'm going to take care of you because I know better. And humanism, I'm going to enable what it is that you want to do and the ways that, that you want to you know, be a healthy, productive human being. And that's again, that's the pivot we've got to make. But isn't one of the themes of HR these days about about talent and putting the right talent in the right in the right job, although you say you do say in the book, because we don't understand work, we put the wrong people in the wrong jobs. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you see this very vividly in things like leadership succession processes. That if we really thought about what goes into many of those jobs differently, we would be moving different people into the pipeline. But I think it's I think it's true at every level and in every job that there's to your point no shortage of good intent and good thinking from HR about, you know, kind of getting the right folks in, getting greater diversity of thought, getting greater inclusion, right? There's there's a lot of good intent there, but there's this missing piece. I mean, very few HR departments are structured with a group specifically thinking about work and understanding how work is changing. 
you know, that's really? a concrete structural gap. So that that would be a, a specific group trying to understand work, what doing research, doing tests, doing experiments. What it sounds a little bit yeah, like I mean, tailoring, but talking to that. employees. Yeah. yeah, talking to employees, understanding, you know, looking uh, looking externally as well. That's been, I think, one of the most encouraging developments as as we see more virtual work. Organizations are thinking more about their talent competitors as opposed to their traditional competitors. So if you think about it with more virtual work, you know, I'm a call center employee, right? I used to be able to work for the one call center in my town. Okay, if I can work from home, I can work for a whole bunch of other companies. And some of it might not be call center work, right? It might just be work that calls upon the same skill sets. So that's forcing companies to look at, okay, who are my talent competitors? Who, I, who do I compete with for people? And then, you know, kind of having to engineer back, okay, well, if I'm losing all my call center workers to, you know, some other piece of virtual work. What's going wrong with this work that they'd rather do this work? And that those are good conversations. That's what HR has got to be looking at. Another element of the humanism in HR that you introduced, Melissa, is your idea of couples therapy between the people work and the technology they work with. They're driving each other crazy. They're, they're stressing each other. So how, how would you do couples therapy? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the idea is having a conscious dialogue. Let's get it on the table. You know, we pretend within organizations that technology always works well or that technological things we have to do like cybersecurity, right? There's no substitute for cybersecurity. But a lot of times it negatively impacts our experience of technology. Oh, gosh, I got to reboot. I got updates again. Oh, this. Oh, I have to do two-factor authentication. Or you know, on a simpler level, we we pretend everything's very smooth, very seamless. You know, it's, it's great. We spent millions on these systems and it's terrific. And the worker experience of technology, I mean, you look at any data on that and it's, it's horrific. There's some great data out of Gartner that, you know, I think a majority of employees, when you implement a new technology, just want the old one back. Mm -hmm. You know, statistics like that really tell us what the actual experience of working with technology is. Uh, and I've spent a bunch of time kind of with CIOs and, and that sort of population. And the best CIOs are very focused on this. And I think that the future is, to some extent, it's the CIO and the CHRO coming together to collaborate on a better exper human experience of technology at work. Because I actually think within the tech function, there's some really good nascent thinking about it. And human resources needs to just enter the dialogue. Yeah, I've always had the uh, theme in my head but the solution to this on a broad basis is engineers with empathy. The people who write the code should be empathetic about the people who are, who are using it. So let, let's dig into some of your, your uh, visions for how this all can be fixed. You really have some very, very different ways of thinking, and it, it was very, very exciting. I'll, I'll read out three headings, and we can break them down. Asynchronous work, deconstructed work, and transparent work. So let's start with asynchronous. I remember being in corporate America and the, the day revolves around meetings. It's all meetings, meetings, meetings. And now even today on Zoom, as you said, it's meetings, which that's the definition of synchronous, right? You've got to, all got to be in the same place at the same time. Um, so how do we go asynchronous? Yeah, so the, I mean, this is where technology is a good news story. We have a lot of good asynchronous collaboration technologies available to us at this point. Slack, be it Microsoft Teams, be it any number of things where, you know, we can work on the same problem 
together, not exactly at the same time. And I think asynchronous work, even in, in blue collar work, has a lot of potential. If we abandon the concept that everybody's got to be on the same shift at the same time and think about the component tasks differently, that's where you can create some of that flexibility for blue collar workers that we haven't been able to create to date, right? As you know, they, they weren't able to work from home, mm -hmm. but you know, maybe we can create timing flexibility if work becomes more asynchronous. So I, I see this as a very, it's a very exciting trend. Like anything else, it has a potential downside, which is that part of how people learn how to work is watching other people work. So you've got to find ways, and there's a, a technique called working out loud, where you kind of in in you know text or chat or emails or whatever you sort of voice what you're doing and i try to do this myself right when i'm managing and participating in asynchronous work where you're, you're sort of still giving those people who are on the development journey those cues about why you're doing what you're doing when you're doing it and that can help but you know you still need to probably you know some degree of synchronous work just such that people can learn there's also the i think the desire for in person not in person but person-to-person, -person, you know, interaction. And that's that's important as well. So we don't totally neglect those things, but there's a far greater role for asynchronous work in killing off some of those meetings. I mean, especially, I mentioned in the book, standing meetings are pretty much the devil. Can we get rid of deadlines, Melissa? I, I always think of part of the problem of, of not being asynchronous is that there's always a deadline. You're always feeling para about, paranoid about deadlines. you got to have the thing fixed in time for the meeting, which is scheduled every week as a standing meeting. Right. You say, can we lose right. that? Can we lose deadlines? Well, it, I think we can lose some of them. Deadlines, to some extent, are a work anxiety monster creation, yeah. right? If I don't set a deadline, they're not going to get it done. And, and one of the things I recommend in the book is having a conversation with your team about pace. Why are we working toward this deadline? Why are we going fast on this? Why are we going slow on that? There are just as many things you might speed up on as you slow down on, but we're not conscious. We're sort of automatons just kind of moving through, you know, to your point with often very artificially set deadlines. So when we take a step back and we say, what's the right pace for the right work, the, the you know, movement really does change. And I, I think you do find you hit the deadlines you have better because when there's a meaningful deadline, there's a logical flow of work to get up to it as opposed to oh my God, it's the standing meeting, it's the night before, and I didn't prepare my three templated slides. Let's go to deconstructed work. I want to break it down into two important parts, Melissa. One, I took it to mean um, fewer jobs with what you call more flexible boundaries. So what is that? Is that job descriptions change? Is it just practice changes? How do we get more flexible boundaries? Well, it's really decomposing jobs into sort of their component tasks. I mean, my my coworker Robin Jasuthasan, you know, wrote a book called Work Without Jobs with his collaborator John Boudreau. And, you know, that the idea there was could you pull apart the job itself? And uh, and the most stylized version of that, you've got a big, you know, task board or a talent marketplace and people can sign up for the pieces that that work for them and work for their skill set and their aspirations. So you know, that's the kind of exciting potential future. I think the the today reality is is pieces of that. So to your point, jobs becoming more fluid, more of sort of this emphasis on on project work within organizations. This was something organizations had a lot of success with during the COVID period of, you know, okay, we've got this group of workers kind of lying fallow because we're not running this part of our business or we're not running it in person right now. 
but we have all these other needs over here. So let's let these guys sign up for this stuff. And that's work deconstruction as well. And I think in a more and more uncertain future, there's going to be more and more of a role for for that, those sort of task-based or project-based pieces, as opposed to kind of whole, you know, big chunk of cheddar cheese jobs. And perhaps we can eliminate the job description, make it much more of a role description. Here's the kind of projects that this person can work on. Yeah, yeah job descriptions these days, I think, operate a lot of times more as artificial blockers of getting better talent pools for, for a particular role than anything else. You know, you you put in a few bullet points and you're you're keeping people out rather than bringing them in. So I'm very much in favor of sort of the most minimal skills-based capture of a job possible. In fact, you introduced this really big and powerful idea and I'm, I'm trying to get my head around it. I love it. It's talent flowing towards work. So we're always looking to find ways to get this concept of flow into the organization, into work, as opposed to structure and, and, and process. Um, and that, this seems like a powerful example of it. So please tell us in some detail what you mean by talent flowing to work. Yeah, I mean, this is the idea that if you kind of get the work right, that talent will naturally migrate toward it, that, you know, truly capture what's in the job. and or the task or the project or whatever the right unit is and the right groups will be attracted to it. Okay. I'm a contingent worker. I can see that that two, you know, two week project is exactly right for me instead of that brilliant two week project being buried in somebody's overall job description who doesn't actually want to do it. You know, it's, it's about sort of two way signals instead of thinking about work as, you know, a claw machine, right? Where you're just going to go down and, grab people and, and kind of drop them in the bucket. Yeah, there's a there's a concept in physics called the constructal law, which is about flow. It, it says that systems are designed to, over time, flow better and more smoothly and, and more quickly with fewer barriers. So maybe one of the answers just, as you say, removing barriers and job descriptions are one example of a barrier we could remove. Absolutely. But it's funny, if you think about it over time, Many, many organizations work worse, not better. And yeah. that's really the argument for, to your point, pulling out some of these kind of artificial blockers because we've almost gummed up the natural order of things in a way. This brings me to the topic of organizational design. It's been around since the 19th century when they tried to figure out how to run the railways. And it seems like it's getting more and more in the, in the way, the, the barriers and the processes and the methods and the structures and the divisions. And what you're trying to get to with flow is the opposite of design. We want to undesign. How do we solve that problem? I, I really see it as if we could get better role clarity at sort of the working team unit, all good things flow from there. That we don't want to go completely loosey-goosey and fluid because then everyone's running around. No one knows what to do. But to your point, the solution isn't all this sort of externally imposed structure. It's a really clear notion within working teams about who does what well and who's on the hook for what at what point. And, and so that's why, again, I'm kind of energized by this real focus on, on the team and what happens within the team, because that's the part that we need to get right. I mean, we've done, some, we've done some funny stuff with organizational structure. One of the things I researched for the book but didn't end up including was the whole history of the matrix organization. 
And it's it's fascinating to me, the idea that we would just hang a whole other structure on top of the structure we already had to solve for complexity by creating more of it. And there's there's a million sort of versions versions of that. And again, if we come back to the work, getting the work right, and then getting the work right within the working team, it, it's almost like the, you don't even have to get the structure is right. The structure matters less. And that's really critical. Yeah, so it's kind of reversing the uh, the approach. Don't build the structure first. Let it let it emerge. A nice thought. Uh, the third topic was transparent work. We hear that word a lot. Transparency. You have a specific definition for it, which is fewer informational gaps, so that each individual is more empowered. So people hoard information, don't they, in organizations, Melissa? It's uh, it's a source of power. Information is power. But then the interesting thing is we do all of these things to return information back to workers at all levels, right? All these investments in systems and tracking and, you know, we, the average worker has more information at their fingertips than they've ever had before at any point in history, more visibility into everything, whatever your role is. Uh, But then, you know, we get anxious about it and we say, well, you know, because what is, what is, you know, if I'm, I'm your boss, what is my power if we have exactly the same information? And that's, I think, going to be some of the, the interesting tension. And this is another one where I think it's a generally positive trend. I think, you know, in, in all the research I've ever seen, more information-empowered frontline workers make for just healthier organizations, right, across the board. The downside is, you know, and, and anybody who's, you know, has kids will, will tell you this, right, that some information's upsetting. Some information is disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. Some information will create conflict. And that's what we have to manage really well as, as leaders is in a more information-rich environment, how do we communicate better about that information, you know, to make sure that it doesn't have negative human impacts, which are very understandable. So is there a big picture here, Melissa? I, I feel like I've done an injustice to your book, picking out parts of it, but um, there's... there's Big picture concept like bottom-up in place of top-down. There's the elimination of organizational design, replacing it with flow. Um, maybe managerial science changes. Maybe HR goes away. What? Give us a big picture kind of view of this. What do you see in the, in the future from a big picture standpoint? For me, the sort of the, the positive future of work is aligning work better to human beings. And, and just putting aside this funny distinction about work's over here, people are over here, and it's all about us getting to do this artificial set of stuff. Now, the negative future of work, and I think we see this with trends like algorithmic management, is that we just keep inserting technology that makes people work more like machines. It's funny, the, the, the working title of this book was You Wouldn't Run a Machine This Way. Right? Because we, we do all kinds of stuff to human workers that, you know, machine, we'd give it downtime, we'd oil it. We don't always do that for humans. But that's what I, when I think about kind of the future I would seek to avert, it's that future of a completely mechanistic view of work. Yep. Well, your book is brilliant. It's, uh, it was really different and refreshing. I learned a lot from it. It stimulated a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts in a lot of directions. So. Thank you very much. It's called Work Here Now, Think Like a Human to Build a Powerhouse Workplace. So thank you, Melissa, for doing that. And 
Are you are you now consulting with corporations to help them do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is my day-to-day work. So it's, it's exciting stuff. And thank you. Thank you for the kind words. You know, my goal with this book is for it to be a provocative read, a fun read, and that everybody can take away at least a few practical things to go and try. Well, the other thing I always like is it's optimistic. You, you point out all the problems, you analyze them really sharply, but you've got some, some visions that say it can be better in the future if we work at it. So thanks for the optimism. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit econforbusiness.com. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit hunterhastings.com.